Welcome to Weekends, Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Yes, Nando Vila, live in the flesh. He's back, baby. He's back. Back, baby. Back, baby. (laughs) Back in the saddle again. Back in black. Like I never left. I missed you guys so much. Dude, we missed you. We missed you. Um, It was great to still have your decodes, uh, pre-recorded decodes while you were away. But it's even better to have you here, of course. There's Um, not the same energy you know, totally. like when it's live, I do the decodes with like, uh, usually when I, when I pre-recorded the decodes, I'm doing them late at night. Poor Kale is like up to like three in the morning uh, with me doing the decodes. And I'm just like, I'm not as, you know, Friday mornings, baby, I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's yep. freaking go. Let's go. And today's show is bananas. Um, we're going to have uh, Adonar Usmani to join us uh, to discuss uh, the, uh, you know, criminal justice reform, the incarceration rate, um, and also the big debate that I'm always uneasy to get into because it's so fierce, uh, class versus race. Uh, There was a great essay written in the latest episode, episode, the latest edition of Catalyst. Um, So we're going to get into the details of that. Our decode segments are fantastic. Uh, Nando's going to get into a little international news. I'm going to talk about Biden's relationship to the Carlisle group and why it is a complete and utter disaster. It's going to be awesome. Really looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, some corruption at home and some corruption abroad. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to all of that, uh, Kale brought a story to our attention that I think is worth doing, especially as we're learning more about the Omicron uh, variant of coronavirus and as Americans are getting uh, more and more, I guess, They're getting urged, let me put it that way, to go get their booster shots if they've already been fully vaccinated. And uh, look, there is, of course, an issue with the fact that we rely on pharmaceutical companies and a healthcare industry that puts priority um, of that prioritizes uh, profits over people. And we certainly see that with the way the Pfizer vaccine was rolled out, not just here in the United States, but internationally. So let's get right to it. Let's discuss. So. While the pandemic has been absolutely awful for the vast majority of Americans, fact of the matter is the most profitable corporations are doing real well. Uh, If you take a look at this graph, uh, you can see, and it's based on uh, data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, uh, the profit margins for these companies are pretty massive. So the margin is the percentage of how much money they have after they expense out all their other costs. And without going into all the details, it's safe to say that business is sitting on a massive pile of cash right now. And among the companies uh, that have made the largest profits are pharmaceutical companies, are drug manufacturers like Pfizer, which of course has its own version of the coronavirus vaccine. In fact, Financial Times reports that Pfizer forecast sales of the vaccine will hit $36 billion, billion with a B, in 2021, Mm. at least double those of its its closest rival, Moderna. And part of the reason why that margin uh, is so high is because of the literal worldwide demand. I mean, Obviously, in order to get past this pandemic, everyone needs to get vaccinated or the highest number of people 
possible needs to get vaccinated. In October, by the way, Pfizer had 80% market share for COVID vaccines in the EU and 74% in the US, which means that they're dominating the vaccine, coronavirus vaccine market right now. And when you're able to kind of monopolize that means you get to set the prices at pretty much whatever you want. So Pfizer, as the Financial Times reports, has the power to set prices and choose which country comes first in an opaque queuing system, including for the booster programs that rich countries are now scrambling to accelerate. And so this has had a terrible impact on um, the global south. Uh, So to ensure that they don't get slapped with any unforeseen costs like lawsuits or local infrastructure costs, Pfizer has been demanding that countries, particularly in the global south, change their laws to give themselves effectively legal immunity. And uh, from Lebanon to the Philippines, national governments change laws to guarantee their supply of vaccines. Jonathan Cushing, um, the head of Global Health and um, Health at Transparency International, says, quote, it is effectively a race to the bottom. Whoever signs over the most will get the vaccines quickest. And of course, there are huge downsides to that, Nando. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a thing that we're seeing more and more in um, several sectors where it's that essentially these giant private transnational corporations can dictate um, laws in countries. This happens uh, in, in, in many different sectors, but this is just the latest example and one of the more flagrant examples. Um, it shows just how uh, incompatible with true democracy the presence of these private power conglomerates um, are. You know, they are literally antithetical to democracy. This is the tragedy of outsourcing um, what should be kind of public infrastructure over to private hands, um, vaccine manufacturing being one of them. Like, there is no reason why uh, Pfizer needs to be a private corporation or that a private corporation should be the one doing the vaccine manufacturing. Obviously, in the United States, uh, the state has been so hollowed out that there probably isn't even capacity right now. But But that doesn't have to be the case. Um, right. You know, we we essentially handed them billions of dollars um, to to make this vaccine up front um, and are now allowing them to dictate laws around the world and reap massive profits. I mean, it's just a, it's just a transfer of wealth from the public sphere to the private sphere. Right. And, you know, Pfizer is one of the pharmaceutical companies that refused to take the money from Trump's Operation Warp Speed. However, as we've talked about before, the framework for the vaccine was developed through public infrastructure, yeah. through public investment. And so part of the reason why they didn't take the money from Operation Warp Speed is because they wanted to be able to roll out the vaccine with less strings attached. And to be sure, they've kind of been able to do that. So in addition to bumping down poor countries in the vaccine queue for like not being able to pay, um, their access to the vaccine is also being conditioned um, on legal changes. And that's a big problem because uh, the global South is, in fact, in desperate need. And by the way, if you happen to live in the United States or another uh, wealthy developed country, in order to get past the pandemic, we need everyone to get vaccinated, right? And so we don't live on, you know, in a situation where you can kind of like isolate a country from everyone else, right? We live in a Look at the Omicron. The Omicron variant started in Africa. I think the percentage of vaccination in Africa is 2%. It's not like they're all full of like woo-woo anti-vaxxers there. They just literally can't get the vaccine. 
Um, right. You know, two percent of Africans are vaccinated right now, or something like that. I forgot the official number, um, well, and that's where the Omicron variant it. started. Oh, we do have. Yeah, it. yeah, go. yeah. Exactly. So, um, the, exactly. So, the Omicron uh, variant, as Nando mentions, um, originated. Well, first time we heard of it, it came out of South Africa, uh, which is why the Biden administration has d- decided to implement a travel ban um, in that uh, region of Africa. About eight countries now have a, a travel ban, which is ridiculous. Like the virus is already here in the United States. They've already found examples of it in um, San Francisco and in Los Angeles County. Um, But going back to uh, the vaccination rate in uh, developed countries versus poorer countries, take a look at this graph and you'll see, um, you know, a pretty stark difference, um, exacerbating stark inequalities in vaccine coverage. Uh, The race to vaccinate the world has been complicated by rich countries' booster programs as well. Uh, boosting is now well underway. Israel, for instance, has already given a third dose to 44% of its population. The UK has done 22% and the United States just over 10%. And this means because this essential medical innovation is in the hands of uh, a company that's only driven by profits, uh, again, the wealthier countries that have the resources necessary to pay for it are going to have access to it first. Pfizer, by the way, also expects the gravy train um, to continue uh, even after the pandemic is over. So, for instance, uh, FT reports that next year, Pfizer forecasts it will generate $29 billion from the vaccine. In February of 2021, Pfizer predicted that after the pandemic ends, its current margins in the high 20 percentage points will increase as costs are likely to fall. And they're really looking forward to um, the boosters, right? Like they see that as an opportunity to continue making money. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla insists that Pfizer is in a position of commercial strength in the COVID vaccine market with people likely to need boosters year after year. Borla told investors this month that Pfizer has touched more lives than any pharmaceutical company before and that its $80 billion in forecasted revenues this year is likely to record, uh, likely a record for any drug maker ever. And Nando, let's talk a little bit about the distrust toward pharmaceutical companies, because while the CEO of Pfizer is salivating over the idea of boosters year after year, Americans see that kind of and not just Americans, people across the globe see that kind of statement as, well, this is just a conspiracy to keep making money for pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And you understand where it's coming from. I mean, again, I think that the point, the like the correct analysis for from the point of view of the left is that it's true that Pfizer is incentivized to, you know, dole out as many of these as possible and reap as much money from them possible. It doesn't mean that they don't work. Um, It just means that the that the uh, distribution of them is not equitable and democratic um, and or in any way cost effective or anything like that, like that it could be there, there, it, it has nothing to do necessarily with the efficacy of, of the booster shot or the vaccine or whatever. What it does have to do is with the um, equitable nature of the distribution. The, the way it's distributed now is that if you're rich, you know, in the rich world, you get it. If in the poor world, you don't get it uh, until they extract all kinds of concessions from from the developing world in order to give it to them. Um, I mean, this is why, like, the Biden administration's decision, or I, I guess they like technically decided to to do it, but they're not really doing anything about it to like share um, Moderna's recipe with the rest of the world and you know things like that um, is just so disastrous. I mean, that's what would that's what a public 
version of the vaccine and boosters would look like, it would look like that, like that every, any, you know, that these results would be the, 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 the formula or whatever would be published, you know, for anyone to see. Um, and, uh, and then the countries would be allowed to develop their own versions publicly. Um, mm-hmm. Instead, it's being used as a way to uh, pump up private profits. Exactly. And really, Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies really benefit from the fact that the vaccine is distributed in an unequal way, right? Because that makes way for new variants. Uh, New variants mean possibly additional vaccines, additional boosters. And again, this is not a commentary on the efficacy of the vaccine or the boosters. They have clearly been shown to work and keep people uh, safe and alive, which is incredibly important and awesome. But again, in order for us to really get past the pandemic, we need to get as many people across the globe vaccinated as possible. And uh, that's not happening right now because of the profit motive, because of the privatized nature of these companies. pharmaceutical companies. So it's, you know, it's a fascinating story. There's so much more to get into. Um, Why not? Let's talk about some other parts. So um, when governments, by the way, renegotiate new rounds of vaccines in the future, um, it's possible that Pfizer will be uh, charging increasingly higher prices. So remember, they've kind of monopolized the market. And so they're already kind of able to charge whatever they want, but they could increase prices in the future if they want. Pfizer has told investors that it will be able to raise the price of COVID-19 I'm sorry, raise the price after COVID-19 enters an endemic phase when its spread is when its spread is slower and more controlled. Analysts are cautious about assuming it will dramatically hike the price, wary that Pfizer could face more competition, but Pfizer's dominance looks increasingly secure as other vaccines are delayed or abandoned. And uh, this situation has also put governments all over the world in um, a, a historically unique position. Uh, the unique, uh, the p- uh, pandemic has ushered in a massive expansion of state power. I mean, and look, we've seen that in regard to the vaccine, but we've also seen that in regard to other parts of daily life, right? Like the state has a lot of power in regard to making decisions about business closures, about uh, lockdowns, uh, telling people that they need to stay home. And so we know that the government has power to... uh, make some pretty giant decisions, certainly decisions that affect our lives, but they're unwilling to make those decisions or take um, any real leadership role in maybe changing this system from a privatized one to a nationalized one, to one that really uh, serves the public interest as opposed to uh, what investors are hoping for, which is a return on their investment. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you can, you know, when you see someone kind of being, um, you know, conspiratorial or or um, skeptical of things like this. Um, you understand why. I mean, that's the that's that's what's so hard to when you when you're kind of caught in the middle of the culture war between both sides. And when there's one side is saying like nothing, there's nothing to see here. Everything is perfect, you know. And the other side is saying like this is just uh, you know Soros trying to control me. Um, you, you kind of see where where it's coming from, but they neither side is kind of understanding the fundamentals be beneath it. Um, and it's that is that they're you're right to distrust um, the state and private power. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean in every case that that the thing is like fake or 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 harmful. Um, it just means that someone's getting rich off of it and it's not you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And as always, the culture war is meant to distract you from like what's how this system is broken and how profits um, always take priority over people. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's give a shout out to our partner and then uh, we'll do our decodes. Absolutely. It's December and you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. Now is the perfect time to order gifts for all the radicals in your life. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months. And if you join in December, you'll get these books. The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, a chronicle foretold by Tariq Ali. Essays on the Tragedies Inflicted on Afghanistan. Feminism and Nationalism in the Third World by Kumari Jayawardena, a founding text of transnational feminism. Democracy Against Capitalism, Renewing Historical Materialism by Ellen Makesons Wood, an exploration of capitalism as a system of social relations and political power. The Pristine Culture of Capitalism, a historic essay on old regimes and modern states by Ellen Mason's Wood. Ooh, double double entry into this month. A lively historical historical look at the contradictions of the capitalist system. By the way, we uh, interviewed Tarika Lee uh, a few weeks ago, yes. and it was fantastic. So if you guys missed that episode, definitely check that out. It was a really great conversation. Um, and by the way, we talked about Afghanistan. We talked about foreign policy, which you're about to get into. So, yep. Nando, take it away. All righty. Well, today we talk about Honduras, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti and the murder capital of the world. Well, there were elections there this week. And guess what? The left won. Tonight in Honduras, (laughs) celebration on the streets of the capital. As the country is poised to have its first female president, leftist opposition candidate Xiomara Castro declaring victory following this weekend's presidential election. That's right. Honduras has just elected its first female president. And better yet, she's a self-proclaimed democratic socialist. For a couple of days, it was unclear there if her early lead would hold. But all doubts were dissipated when the current president, the right wing Juan Orlando Hernández, graciously conceded defeat. Y los resultados reflejan que la señora Xiomara Castro ganó las elecciones. Quiero felicitarla por este medio, por su triunfo electoral. Now, why should you care? I mean, Honduras is a small country in Central America. It's not like it's going to affect the balance of power around the world or anything like that, you may say. Well, let's let the Washington Post editorial board explain. On Tuesday, the esteemed paper wrote, quote, Honduras has held a presidential election on Sunday, and there are many reasons for Americans to be interested in the outcome. 309,000 reasons to be precise. That is the number of Honduran migrants captured at the U.S.-Mexico border in the last 12 months, ending September 30th. That's a crazy number. The figure represented a big acceleration in what was already a mass exodus from the Central American country. Probably about a tenth of Honduras's 10 million people live in the United States now. The flow demonstrates how enormously difficult it is for the United States to treat what the Biden administration has called the root causes impelling people to take the costly and dangerous trip north. Poverty, violence, and official corruption. 300,000 Hondureños have fled to the United States in just one year. That is a staggering number given that the country's total population is around 10 million people. So 
Why are they fleeing the country in such large numbers? What are the root causes, so to speak? Well, it all started really with the 2009 military coup d'etat, which ousted Manuel Zelaya. Angry protesters at the doorsteps of Honduras's presidential palace want President Manuel Zelaya back. The army took over the palace and sealed the entrances, their weapons at the ready. Wielding sticks and steel batons, Zelaya's supporters tried to push themselves through the gate, now guarded by troops in riot gear. Columns of smoke from tires set alight blocked the street outside the palace. It all began at dawn on Sunday when some 200 soldiers surrounded the president's private home. They took him at gunpoint and flew him out of the country to neighboring Costa Rica. A local journalist here could not hide her frustration. For the first time we had a president, a great president who was defending the poor. And simply because he was defending our cause, he was kidnapped this morning. And I weep these tears of indignation. After arriving in Costa Rica, Zelaya told his supporters they should protest in peace while insisting he remained the rightful president of Honduras. I asked them to keep calm but at the same time to defend the rights of society. If we ourselves cannot defend the rights of society, I call for a peaceful resistance without violence. I ask them to seek civil disobedience in a nonviolent way so that they demand the usurpers respect Honduras's democracy. That man, Manuel Zelaya, Coincidentally, is the husband of Xiomara Castro, the woman who just won the elections. It marks the end of a 12-year popular struggle in which Honduras was thrust into a massive social crisis as a series of U.S.-backed right-wing administrations looked to impose harsh neoliberalism on the Honduran population. Poverty, crime, and narco-terrorism soared, but the Honduran people fought back, especially through their large and militant teachers' unions, and now the left is in power. Now, at the time of the 2009 coup, every single Latin American country, even the Organization of American States, and indeed the UN, condemned the coup. But on Tuesday, Mr. Celaya received affirmation from the United Nations. The General Assembly passed a resolution demanding his reinstatement and urging all UN member nations not to recognize any government other than Mr. Celaya's. It is done. It is done. Well, the U.S.'s response was a little different. This happened early in the Obama administration when Hillary Clinton was running the State Department. If the U.S. wasn't outright involved in the coup, it certainly looked the other way and then provided crucial dip- diplomatic cover. Here's Hillary Goodfriend writing in Jacobin. Quote, the plane that flew Celaya out of the country stopped to refuel at a joint U.S. Honduran military base. And four of the six top generals who oversaw this Celaya's uh, ouster were trained at the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. But while no smoking gun exists to implicate the United States in a pre-coup conspiracy, the Obama administration's subsequent efforts to legitimize and sustain the post-coup regime was public enough. The United States was among the few nations to endorse the November 20, 2009 sham elections that brought Porfirio Lobo of the conservative National Party to power. Following the Democratic charade, the Obama administration used its influence in international financial institutions to ensure that the flow of loans was restored to Honduras. Hillary Clinton discussed the 2009 coup in her book, Hard Choices. Well, the hardcover edition, at least. 
While the UN, the EU and the OAS were calling for Zelaya to be immediately reinstated, Clinton was, in her own words, to quote her 2014 memoir, Hard Choices, strategizing a plan to restore order in Honduras and ensure that free and fair elections could be held quickly and legitimately, which would render the question of Zelaya moot. A pretty damning admission. Which is probably why she removed it from the paperback edition of her memoir that came out a year later. Oh. I wonder how that happened. Anyway, I think it's worth hearing Clinton speak at length in her own words about the 2009 coup d'etat in Honduras, just to see how she ties herself into a logical pretzel to support something so brazen. He asked about Clinton's decision not to declare Zelaya's ouster in 2009 a coup. Do you have any concerns about the role that you played uh, in that particular situation, even not necessarily being in agreement with your top A's in the State Department? Well, let me again try to put this in context. Um, the legislature, or the, the, the national legislature in Honduras and the national judiciary actually followed the law in removing President Zelaya. Now, I didn't like the way it looked or the way they did it, but they had a very strong argument that they had followed the Constitution and the legal precedents. And as you know, they really undercut their argument by spiriting him out of the country in his pajamas, where they sent, you know, the military to, you know, take him out of his bed and get him out of the country. So this was this began as a very uh, you know, mixed and difficult situation. If the United States government declares a coup, you immediately have to shut off all aid, including humanitarian aid, um, the Agency for International Development aid, uh, the support that we were providing at that time for a lot of very poor people. And that triggers a legal necessity. There's no way to get around it. So our assessment was we will just make the situation worse by punishing the Honduran people if we declare a coup and we immediately have to stop all aid for uh, the people. But we should slow walk and try to stop anything that the government could take advantage of without calling it a coup. I mean... You know, I talked to the generals and they made a they made a compelling legal argument. Obviously, it was slightly undercut by the fact that they had to spirit this guy away in his friggin pajamas to Costa Rica in the middle of the night. But, you know, uh, you know, we support the, we have to support the coup to help the Honduran people. I mean, opposing the coup would be worse for the Honduran people. Of course, subsequent events in Honduras prove otherwise. As I mentioned, in the years after the coup, violent crime rose dramatically in Honduras. And while the state of Honduras' Honduras pre-coup wasn't that great, it was still better than this. Here's Hillary Goodfriend again, quote, Honduras, the original, quote, banana Republican, banana republic has been economically dependent upon and politically subordinate to the United States since the dawn of the 20th century. In addition to providing the U.S. a steady supply of primary materials and low-wage labor, the country has functioned for decades as a giant U.S. military base, serving as the staging ground for the 1954 U.S.-backed coup in Guatemala and the Contra War against Sandinista Nicaragua throughout the 1980s. 
Despite suffering from the same widespread poverty and oligarchic rule that categorized the rest of the region, Honduras is anti-communist welfare state and modest mid-century, uh, mid-century agrarian reform helped stave off the insurrections that racked neighboring Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, a lesson that contemporary elites refused to learn. Certainly, Honduras was no paradise before the coup. A two-party system guaranteed that power remained in the hands of landed elites who viewed the state as a source of personal enrichment and increasingly a vehicle for transnational capital. The U.S.-backed neoliberal offensive launched in the 1990s, escalated in the 2000s, and coupled with repressive anti-gang policing, set the stage for the militarized libertarian free-for-all of the post regime. That militarized libertarian free-for-all has been an absolute nightmare for the average Honduran. Before the coup, Honduras had a a modest welfare state and was relatively stable. But since 2009, successive right-wing administrations have been trying to privatize basically everything, including the water system, education, and healthcare. The Honduran Doctors Association is leading a struggle against the government's intentions of approving a new general health law which will privatize the health service. We are protesting against the privatization of our health system. It's a law that has already been used because it is a copy of Colombia's 1993 health law, known as the 100 law, that has proved to be inefficient in giving equal health services. Only a part of the population with enough money has access to all medical services. Those who can't pay, those who are poor and vulnerable, have no access to a good health system. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, the links between privatization abroad and privatization at home cannot be ignored. Here's Biden Rodriguez Pineda, a spokesperson for one of Honduras's teacher unions. Quote, the Honduran restructuring plans hark back to emergency management laws implemented in places like Michigan or the expansion of the charter school model in the U.S. This is likely not a coincidence. This kind of restructuring of the Honduran education system has been part of the government's agenda since the 2009 coup. In September 2010, post-coup President Porfirio Lobo Sosa famously traveled to New Orleans and signed a memorandum of understanding with then-Mayor Mitch Landrieu and Tulane University President Scott Cowan to partner on healthcare, public education, and student exchange. The transformation of the public school system in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, which involved converting 90% of public schools into charter schools, was to serve as a model for the Honduran education system. For the Lobo administration, the intent was expressly anti-union. Quote, we've had a huge problem with teachers unions, said Mayra Pineda, then liaison between the Honduran government and New Orleans city officials to the Louisiana Justice Institute. The teachers, they're striking all the time and the kids are losing out on school days. Charter schools are certainly one option to try to solve the union situation. Now, all of these privatization efforts sparked a massive wave of social resistance. The teachers unions, doctors associations, student groups, and other social movements mobilized and took to the streets to oppose neoliberalism, as well as a government that they saw as wholly illegitimate after the events of 2009. The protests reached a high point in 2019, and you know what? They managed to get a lot of the worst reforms overturned. This is according to the People's Dispatch. On April 30th, 2019, the National Congress of Honduras officially announced the nullification of the controversial law of restructuring and transformation of the national education and healthcare system. The nullification came after days of intense protests across the country by healthcare professionals, teachers, students, doctors, and citizens. 
Protesters claim that the law would have led to massive cutbacks in personnel in the health and education sectors and would have adversely affected the population's access to these key services, which are already very limited. The protests also renewed calls for the resignation of President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who was re-elected in November 2017 through massive electoral fraud. The law was initially passed by the Honduran Congress on April 25th. Article 7 of the law called for and allowed the cancellation and termination of contra- contracts and posts. Healthcare and education workers also said that the law would promote privatization of the health and education system. They claimed that the law was an attempt to comply with the demands of the International Monetary Fund to reduce public spending. Now, as I mentioned earlier, all of this led to an incredible rise in violent crime in Honduras. In a 2014 dispatch for Al Jazeera America, Mark Weisbrot of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., highlighted some related aspects of the coup fallout for which Washington was more than slightly responsible. The homicide rate in Honduras, already the highest in the world, increased by 50 percent from 2008 to 2011. Political repression, the murder of opposition political candidates, peasant organizers and LGBT activists increased and continue to this day. Femicides skyrocketed. We just got word that there was a shooting here in this neighborhood. There's several people who've been shot. There's a huge crowd of people who are looking on at the scene. We've been here just four hours and already we've seen six murders. This crime scene is so fresh, authorities are still looking for the killers in the crowd. One police officer has been gunned down. Five gang members are dead. Every hour and 15 minutes, somebody gets killed here. This is not Iraq or Afghanistan. Honduras is a different kind of war, and we're in the most dangerous city in the world, San Pedro Sula. So there's one kid over here being questioned by police right now, and sources tell us that he may be a gang member. Gang violence, fueled by drug trafficking, has made San Pedro Sula ground zero for migrants fleeing the danger zone, causing the latest crisis on the U.S. border. Yeah, remember that little migrant caravan? You know, the one that became such a flashpoint in the culture war at the height of the Trump era in 2018? He wasn't done scaring the crap out of people. A few minutes later, he tweeted, Our military is being mobilized at the southern border. Many more troops coming. We will not let these caravans, which are also made up of some very bad thugs and gang members, into the U.S. Our border is sacred. Must come in legally. Turn around. He yelled it at them? He yelled, yeah, turn around? Does he think the folks whatever. in the caravan are reading his tweets? <laughs> Hold up, everybody. Hold up. President of the United States says we got to turn around. Well, it was worth a shot. Back to the death squads, everybody. Let's go. Come on. Let's. Ariba. I don't know how to. Man, that is comedy. Now, that caravan didn't come mainly from El Salvador or Guatemala or Mexico or official U.S. enemy state Nicaragua. It came from Honduras. Sitting and waiting near the side of the bus station, hundreds of Honduran nationals are preparing to leave the country by foot. Jairo Reyes is traveling with his two young children. He is four years old and she is two. Jairo says he understands the risks, but says there's nothing left for him in his hometown. I have been told this isn't easy, but I have to take the risk. What else can I do? If I stay here, my children could starve to death. 
Now, it's just the latest example of how U.S. meddling abroad can have disastrous effects on the local populations and ultimately blow back on the United States, which only causes it to react with more violence in the form of things like border militarization and child separation policies and concentration camps. Obama and Clinton could have stepped in to stop the coup like the rest of the world wanted. Instead, they supported the coup and then supported the subsequent right-wing administrations who sought to turn Honduras into a libertarian fantasy land with terrible consequences. And wait, oh my God, whoopsie, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president we supported, was ultimately charged with drug trafficking. In one of the largest drug conspiracy cases ever prosecuted in U.S. federal courts, a Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez has been accused of accepting millions of dollars in bribes from drug cartels to provide safe transit of cocaine through the region. In his most recent statement on Twitter, he denied both involvement with the cartels and allegations against him made by the U.S. prosecutors and key witnesses. The president claims those testifying against him are cartel members seeking a deal to reduce their sentences. This March, the president's brother, former Honduran congressman Tony Hernandez, was sentenced in the United States to life plus 40 years in prison after being convicted of state-sponsored drug trafficking. <laughs> Trial evidence revealed that he had smuggled 185 tons of cocaine into the U.S. Sounds bad. So after 12 terrible years, it looks like there is a light at the end of the tunnel for Honduras. The task of stabilizing the country will fall to Xiomara Castro. So who is she? I wanted to ask you also about the role of, of, of Mel Celaya, uh, he was a campaign manager for Xiomara uh, Castro, uh, but Mel Celaya, when he got when when he was elected, was one of the few examples in Latin American history of a person who was elected as basically a conservative uh, leader who then becomes increasingly uh, left wing and progressive. Could you talk about the relationship between him and his wife politically, and uh, whether there are differences between them? Because she's obviously much more has been openly more democratic socialist. In, in her viewpoints? Definitely. I think Mesalaya became politicized um, during the pink tide moment in Latin America. Um, also, because, you know, um, you know, and he says this, uh, he said it in various interviews when he came into power, right? The first group he met with was the uh, businessmen, and then they started to dictate this is how the country's going to run. And I think he wasn't expecting that back in 2006. Um, you know, Xiomara has emerged as a leader when you play those interviews of her at the Nicaraguan border coming back into Honduras. Um, you know, that is that is one Xiomara, right? The, the, the first lady uh, defending, uh, you know, the rights of, of the first family to come back into the country. And um, and the Xiomara that you're seeing now has has gone through these 12 years of what Leave It a Party members called a dictatorship under the Nationalist Party. Um, she has emerged as a progressive leader. Um, I think she's incredibly well prepared for this moment. Um, and she has been able to amass a coalition, a wide swath of coalition that represents, uh, you know, 
a, a very wide sector of the society, which is, I think, why she was able to, to win this time, right? There's multiple parties, including environmentalists, including so, social movement organizations. When she called for a permanent national dialogue, this has never happened in Honduras. I don't think it's ever happened in Latin America, right? Um, this idea that she's going to be in permanent dialogue with the Honduran people, but also with the opposition, right? She said, I have no enemies. I'm willing to sit down and negotiate so that we can bring this country forward. Um, I think that that's a different Xiomara than the 2009 Xiomara. I think that those are sort of things that she has been able to learn through the 2013 election and then other elections that, that happened, uh, the fraudulent election of 2017. Her task is certainly daunting. She'll have to try and taper off the worst of the criminal violence, and the cartels don't tend to go down easy. While rebuilding Honduras' social services, excuse me, she will have to do so without the help of the United States. Given her own personal history, it's understandable that she is seeking help elsewhere, namely China, which is already drawing the ire of the West. Xiomara Castro's victory in the Honduras presidential elections has placed the Central American nation at the heart of an intensifying diplomatic tug-of-war between Taiwan and China. Honduras is one of only 15 remaining countries that recognizes the sovereignty of Taiwan, which China claims is part of its own territory. But Castro made a manifesto pledge to end the decades-long relationship and establish diplomatic ties with Beijing. Castro's proposal has prompted concern in Washington, which has urged her to maintain the relationship with Taiwan, according to sources within her campaign. During a visit to Honduras the week before the election, a U.S. delegation made clear its hope that the country would maintain its current relationship with Taiwan, which the Chinese foreign ministry denounced as arm-twisting and bullying behavior. Although Taiwan has donated generously to its poorer allies, including Honduras, it cannot compete with the economic largesse of China, which has showered gifts, loans, and investments upon other countries in the region who have switched diplomatic allegiances in recent years. For example, Panama cut ties with Taipei in 2017 and has since seen a wave of Chinese investment. Now, we live in an era where mass politics seems dead here in the U.S. and really also in Europe. But in Latin America, mass politics are alive and well. We've seen how mass mobilizations of unions and social movements have resisted coup attempts in Bolivia. We've seen how they've upended the neoliberal order in Chile. More on that in a future decode. And we've seen how they have turned Honduras around. Latin America is once again the vanguard of the left. And next year, we have the big one, the possible return of Lula da Silva to the presidency of Brazil in the upcoming elections. If you're looking for inspiration in the middle of this dreadful era of political stagnation in the U.S., look no further than Latin America. Love that segment. Uh, this is why they pay you the big bucks, Nando. Your international yeah. analysis. It's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to keep the commentary short. Uh, but the thing that really stood out to me was just how, like, Hillary Clinton's justification um, for not calling what happened in Honduras a coup is like arbitrary. It's not something set in stone, right? If we call it a coup, then we have to cut off any humanitarian aid. Do we though? Do we? Couldn't you just make yeah, the like there's no to like, not do that? <laughs> of course, yeah. you know, like you're the boss. I don't know. You could do whatever the fuck you want. Exactly. Um, you could do an Iran Contra for aid. You know, like <laughs> they figure ways out to, uh, to to do it when they really want to. Um, 
Yeah, I mean that that I had not heard, I had read the the passage in Hard Choices, uh, but I had not seen her uh, interview with the New York Daily News editorial board. Um, I mean, it's just it's 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 really breathtaking to to see that kind of logic in play. It's like, well, uh, you know, I had to look out for the Honduran people, yeah, and right. uh, you know, yeah, like, are you fucking like, like maybe listen to like literally every other uh, president in the region and the rest of the world who was like, this is insane. Like, how can you support this? Right. Um, I mean, like, maybe there's a possibility that if uh, Honduras is allowed to have a democratically elected leader, uh, they wouldn't need as much humanitarian aid from the United States. No. But it, to me, it was another example of how, you know, th- it's a very realist perspective, how humanitarian aid is really just used to accumulate power and influence over other countries and um, their economy and their natural resources. And it's no surprise that, you know, the uh, influx of asylum seekers come from countries like Honduras, come from countries like Guatemala, right? Come from countries that the United States has certainly meddled in and has um, played a role in, uh, you know, overthrowing democratically elected leaders through orchestrated coups. And so yeah. we have to we have to think about not just our foreign policy, but also how our um, our domestic policy Uh, leads to the crime and violence in other countries. I mean, the fact that we have incredibly laxed gun laws, that also plays a role. So many of our weapons get smuggled into Latin American countries, into Mexico, which, of course, help the drug cartels there. And, you know, there's never any reflection on on what we're doing here in the United States and how that has um, an impact worldwide. It's just this weird take of, oh, my God, all this terrible stuff is happening to us. Yeah, it's bad stuff happening down there. Yeah, I mean, or, or mass incarceration and mass deportation. I mean, the the two criminal gangs that basically control uh, or are the purveyors of most of the violence in Honduras are MS-13 and something called Barrio Barrio 18. Barrio 18. Um, they're uh, they're both they both started in Los Angeles in fucking LA prisons, and then were all those guys were deported back to uh, Central America, where they were like, okay, well now what are we going to do? We're just going to do crime here. Um, and it's just it's the cycle. The, all all of those obviously came from um, the original wave of migration in the wake of the dirty wars um, in, in in the seventies and eighties. Uh, so it's like it's a it's a circle. It's a loop. It's like our the policies here. We are the hegemon. We're the powerful. Like to look at some tiny country, tiny poor country in the Caribbean or Central America, and assume that they're just like bad stuff's just happening there without us either perpetrating it or allowing it is, is crazy. You know, like that's just, that's, that's, that's childish. uh, It's a childish understanding of how the world works. Like look at power, look at influence, who has it, who doesn't. And the people who are responsible for the things that happen in the world are those who have power. Exactly. Well, uh, let's take a little trip back to the United States uh, to talk about something that was a little bit of a scandal prior to the Thanksgiving break, but I wish people paid more attention to the ramifications of the scandal. So Although it feels like Thanksgiving break was months ago, it was, wasn't too long that we were about to go on break, enjoy our meals with our families, and then we hear about President Joe Biden and what his Thanksgiving plans were. In fact, President Joe Biden and his family decided to uh, spend their Thanksgiving holiday at the Nantucket home of private equity billionaire David Rubenstein. 
Now, we know the president likes to emphasize his middle class roots, but during this stay, the family is staying at the 13 acre, $30 million compound that is owned by private equity billionaire David Rubenstein, who made it available during this visit. David Rubenstein made it available during the visit. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that David Rubenstein happens to be the co-CEO of the Carlisle Group, a private equity firm, and that's pretty much how he acquired or accumulated his massive wealth. Apparently, Rubenstein, who's worth $4.5 billion, was not there, was not there during this Thanksgiving holiday. But still, the optics of Biden's Thanksgiving plans were pretty awful. I mean, consider how Democrats campaigned against Virginia's Republican governor-elect, Glenn Youngkin, by mentioning the fact that he had ties to the Carlisle Group as a co-CEO. And while campaigning for Democratic incumbent Terry McAuliffe, Biden made Youngkin sound like a real threat to American democracy. In fact, he was quoted as saying, extremism can come in many forms. It can come in the rage of a mob driven in an assault, driven to assault the Capitol. It could come in a smile and a fleece vest. Oh, wow. I mean, Glenn Youngkin, so dangerous, especially considering he was the co-CEO of the Carlisle Group. Now, the Bidens are openly hanging out with the at the so-called compound belonging to the private equity firm's um, other co-founder and co-CEO. But uh, Biden brushed aside and dismissed any criticism and even referred to Rubenstein as a friend. Uh, the statement released, the president and the first lady, Jill Biden, touched down in Nantucket uh, in Nantucket night to spend the holiday week with extended family, planning to stay at the home of their friend, David Rubenstein, as they have done, the White House told reporters. They've done it for a long time, apparently going back uh, to the 1970s. Uh, and it's about his relationship, though, with David Rubenstein. That's the real problem here. Yes, the optics are terrible. Yes, the Democrats are hypocrites when they're campaigning against private equity uh, co-CEOs and then turning around and vacationing in their homes. However, what I want to talk about is the kind of influence that someone like Rubenstein has over the Democratic Party and especially over someone like Joe Biden. Unfortunately, the ties between Wall Street and our government have uh, never been stronger. Carlisle specialized, by the way, in buying and selling businesses that relied on government spending, and it hired former government officials to help it. Carlisle partners included James Baker III, a former Treasury Secretary, and Frank Carlucci, a former Defense Secretary. President Emeritus George H.W. Bush was also an advisor to the firm. Now, Biden, much like the uh, Republicans he claims to be a more decent human being than, has uh, benefited handsomely from campaign donations coming from private equity firms like the Carlisle Group. In fact, during the Democratic primaries in 2020, Liz Featherstone wrote in Jacobin that Joe Biden is, in fact, a huge favorite of private equity donors, getting large sums from Blackstone and drawing more contributions from Carlisle Group and Apollo Global Management than on any other candidate. In fact, Open Secrets details just how much money the Car Carlisle Group spent on lobbying in 2020 alone, which uh, was more than $4 million in legalized bribes to both Democrats and Republicans. Let's take a look at the numbers. So total number of contributions. Again, this is in 2020 alone. Almost $4 million 
And uh, that is pretty significant. And they didn't just focus on Democrats or Republicans. They gave a little more to Democrats. Uh, but if you look at this graph, you'll see that um, they make sure to uh, use their influence on both parties here. And when looking at individuals who were recipients of the Carlisle Group cash, Joe Biden was, of course, at the very top, having received the most amount of money, $101,827. Again, this is from the Carlisle Group directly to recipient Joe Biden as he's campaigning for president of the United States. And even though Republicans are just as addicted to Wall Street cash, conservative media did not in any way hesitate to exploit the bad optics associated with Biden vacationing in the home of David Rubenstein. Here's Peter Ducey asking White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about it just before the Thanksgiving break. What message does it send to the middle class Americans President Biden says that he's trying to help? who are struggling this week to cover the cost of the most expensive Thanksgiving ever, that the president is going to take a few days off at a billionaire's compound in Nantucket. Well, first I would say, I don't know if you've cooked a turkey before, but a 20-pound turkey is a pretty big turkey. I think we can all agree. They're about $1 more. Uh, so not to minimize that, any increase in prices is something the president is concerned about, as is evidenced by his announcement today and as his efforts to push forward on additional relief for the American people. But I just want to be clear that there are abundance of turkeys available. They're about $1 more for a 20-pound bird, which is a huge bird if you're feeding a very big family. Uh, and that's something that, again, we've been working to make sure people have more money in their pockets to address it as the economy is turning back on. Now, Peter Ducey, of course, is trying to play populist by asking that question. But since it's completely disingenuous, he, of course, didn't frame the question in a way that would have been far more effective at getting at the heart of the issue. This isn't about the inflation associated with turkeys. This is about the type of corporate influence that has corrupted both parties and certainly has, in fact, corrupted the Democratic Party to the point where on substantive issues, issues, we don't really see much difference between Democrats and Republicans, certainly when it comes to Wall Street and these big banks. Now, again, having friendly relationships uh, with people like the co-CEO of the Carlyle Group is, is worth noting. Um, and the reason why it's worth noting is because we see how economic policy uh, gets proposed or rolled out by the Democratic Party while they campaign pretending to be any different from Republicans. So something else happened that week that the uh, reporters somehow failed to connect the dots to. That very same week, Joe Biden decided to reappoint Jerome Powell as the chair of the Federal Reserve. And believe it or not, that story is very much connected to the fact that Biden stayed in the home of Carlisle Group's co-CEO, uh, Rubenstein. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Jerome Powell was appointed by Donald Trump. Why the hell would Joe Biden reappoint him, especially because of the fact that his monetary policy has actually been pretty disastrous in regard to inflation in the housing market? In the early 2000s, turns out that Powell was a partner at the Carlyle Group, a private equity firm that specialized in hiring former government officials and cashing in on their connections. At Carlyle, Powell learned firsthand about the debt-driven business model of the private equity business, which delivered hundreds of millions of dollars of profit to senior partners while saddling the companies they bought and sold with debt and downsizing. 
What happened at Toys R Us is a perfect example of the disgusting behavior of these uh, predatory private equity firms. But we'll talk about that in more detail at another time. Private equity firms have benefited significantly from monetary policy that Jerome Powell uh, put in overdrive while chairing the Fed. So that policy is known as quantitative easing. I've spoken about it before, but here's a quick explainer video to, to, to show you what this monetary policy is and how it benefits private equity firms and big banks. The process works like this. One, the central bank waves its magic wand and creates money. Two, it then gives that money to commercial banks by buying assets from them, such as bonds or mortgage-backed securities. And that's how the money ends up in the financial system. Three, what commercial banks do with that money is outside the central bank's control. Central banks hope commercial banks will lend to people so that they can buy goods and services, thereby jumpstarting the economy. So far, this hasn't happened. Banks preferred to keep most of the money as reserves, which explains why we didn't have consumer price inflation. The only result of the money creation so far has been that the price of assets, such as bonds and stocks, went up. That's right, people. They take the money from the Federal Reserve, which claims that the money is meant to be lent to ordinary Americans, to small businesses. They just take the money and they make their own investments to enrich themselves. And there has, in fact, been an issue with inflation in regard to assets like real estate, assets like housing, which I've talked about before, but we'll get into it uh, a little deeper later in the segment. Now, um, just to give you a little more uh, detailed information about how monetary policy works and who really benefits from it, Christopher uh, Leonard writes in Fortune that the Fed doesn't create dollars in the bank accounts of ordinary Americans. Rather, it can only create dollars inside the bank vaults of 24 elite institutions on Wall Street called primary dealers, which include banks like J.P. Morgan and Citigroup. When the Fed prints money, it essentially engages in an extreme form of trickle-down economics by giving new cash to the biggest banks in America in hopes that they will eventually create jobs and boost wages. Now, as we know, the money doesn't actually trickle down, doesn't trickle down to ordinary Americans at all. Private equity firms use the money to invest in assets like real estate, which again, we'll get back to in just a bit. Between 2008 and 2014, the Federal Reserve created roughly three times as much money as it had created between 1913 and 2007. In other words, it crammed about 300 years worth of money growth into a few short years. And that was before Powell's chairmanship at the Fed. Uh, but in a salute to disaster capitalism, Powell exploited the pandemic to put quantitative easing in overdrive. So when COVID hit in 2020, the Fed printed about another 300 more years worth of money in a period of months, some $3 trillion. And by the way, as that was happening, what was Congress doing in regard to any stimulus or financial relief for ordinary American people? Nickel and diming the hell out of us. And remember, the Federal Reserve is not a body that is democratically elected. The individuals working at the Fed are appointed, much like the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell. Now, the Carlyle Group absolutely loves the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. Many years of easy money policies by the Federal Reserve have been rocket fuel for private equity firms like Carlyle Group because cheap debt is their lifeblood. It funds their ambitious takeover plans and even funds their paychecks 
directly. In other words, former Carlyle Group employees um, who now serve in the Federal Reserve implement the very monetary policy that directly benefits their former employers. That's what's happening with Jerome Powell. I really wish that uh, some of these reporters would ask specifically about that. Now, uh, not only does the money fail to trickle down, the money ends up getting invested in ways that actually leads to more pain and suffering for the poorest Americans across the country. Carlisle Group in particular loves to invest in mobile home parks. Uh, What they do is what typical flippers do, except they do it on a wide scale. They buy mobile home parks. They do light renovations, if they do any renovations at all, and then they immediately jack up rent prices to... uh, essentially something that's so incredibly unaffordable, uh, thus targeting and hurting the most vulnerable Americans. According to the federal housing surveys, around 20 million Americans, roughly one in 18, live in mobile homes, in part because they can cost half that of a traditional site-built home. Now, back in 2016, PBS NewsHour profiled Carla Burr, who sold her condo in Manassas, Virginia, to purchase a mobile home. But soon she noticed that her rent kept going up drastically. I chose to move here because it was a beautiful house. And I thought, man, I could retire here. Now 61 years old, Burr and her home may need to move. While she owns the home, she made the purchase in cash, she doesn't own the land underneath. Every month, Burr pays rent to a property manager. Over the past 10 years, that lot rent has gone up 30%, from $740 a month to $1,022 a month. I had no clue that the rent was going to go up the way it did. I mean, it's, it's to the point now where it's more than half my Social Security. I would love to stay. And I would love to keep it right where it is because everything I have is here. All my, my church is here. My family's here. Everybody's here. Now, private equity firms like the Carlisle Group absolutely love to invest in mobile home parks because the fact of the matter is they have a captive group of people that they can completely exploit. Individuals who own mobile homes do not own the land that their mobile homes sit on. And as a result, they have to pay rent in order to rent that land to place their mobile home. When the Carlisle Group comes in, they're able to jack up that rent. And if the individuals owning the mobile homes want to move, it's actually incredibly difficult to do that. Uh, Doing so costs tens of thousands of dollars, and most homes aren't considered real estate. Mobile homes aren't considered real estate. They're considered personal possessions that depreciate in value. So if the individual owning the mobile home wants to sell it, they're kind of stuck because no one really wants to buy it unless they're willing to take a massive loss. Like cars, manufactured homes often depreciate, losing value the longer they're owned. Carla Burr believes the value of her manufactured home has plummeted since she purchased a decade ago. She thinks if she sold it today, she'd get $40,000 less than she paid. If you're in an apartment, you can move. At the end of your lease, you can say, I'm out of here, it's too high. I can't, I don't have that luxury. This house can't move. I mean, unless you go through major hoops to do it. 
When the Carlisle Group, for instance, bought the Plaza del Rey mobile home park in Sunnyvale, Ohio, five years ago, they uh, put the residents of the park's 812 homes in the exact same predicament. In fact, one of the residents living in that mobile home park was quoted as saying, it's worse than being stuck. It's absolute desperation. This predatory activity has led to copycat individuals, investors essentially doing the same thing. And what they do is they pay thousands of dollars for these seminars to educate them about how they can invest their money in mobile home parks and uh, exploit the residents, much like the Carlisle Group does. What really stood out to me in a video about this put together by The Guardian was how they not only know that they have uh, captive residents that they can exploit, uh, they're overjoyed by that fact. Watch. The big thing is they can really tolerate rent increases really well. So the family parks are our favorite park. Almost all of the parks we have, with rare exceptions, are all family parks. And it pretty much works throughout America because there's so much need for affordable housing right now. It didn't work at all back in the 50s and 60s. There were no poor people. So basically, you, you couldn't make it work. Today, there's a huge number of poor people, and there's more poor people like every day. Today, there's a huge number of poor people. There's more poor people every day. Why not take advantage of their vulnerable housing situation and jack up their rents knowing that they're unable to sell their mobile homes, they're unable to move. Let's just take advantage of that. That's essentially what people are paying thousands of dollars to learn at uh, Mobile Home University. Anyway, getting back to the Carlisle Group. Throughout the years, Carlisle, Carlisle Group has purchased thousands of mobile homes uh, or mobile home lots, I should say, throughout the country. Unsurprisingly, they managed to spend hundreds of millions of uh, dollars during the pandemic to do just that, and they did so with money that was given to them by the Federal Reserve. In fact, the Carlisle Group made a huge splash in Mesa, Arizona, acquiring four mobile home parks in the city for a total of $230 million. So while uh, Jerome Powell would have you believe that quantitative easing and the Fed's monetary policy is just another example of wonderful trickle-down economics, it provides liquidity to the markets that somehow gets into the pockets of ordinary Americans, Fact of the matter is, that is untrue. It just continues to enrich the very top. It continues to enrich his former employers over at the Carlisle Group. And it ends up putting Americans at a massive disadvantage at a time when we're already dealing with a housing crisis. So whether Trump originally appointed Jerome Powell to the Fed is irrelevant to Biden when he's spending Thanksgiving in the 13-acre compound owned by Powell's former boss. So next time you hear Biden bragging about the measles $150 billion allocated for affordable housing in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Consider that the funding doesn't even scratch the surface. It doesn't even put a dent in the damage caused by big banks and private equity firms that he seems to constantly uh, give a pass to and uh, do favors for. After all, vacationing in a billionaire's massive compound does in fact come with strings attached. Man, the that the quantitative easing stuff is something that like is is so hard to uh wrap your mind around. You know, I, I saw this video of Yanis Varoufakis trying to explain it to Slavo Zizek, which was hilarious because like Slavo Zizek was actually was like listening and and like you know not interrupting him or talking and stuff, which you know shows just like how uh hard it is to understand for the average person. But it basically you I think you summed it up beautifully where it's like 
it's essentially just money for the rich people and that's it. Yeah. And they they just give it to them. And I, I think like a lot of the stuff that you're seeing, a lot of the weird stuff that we're seeing now, especially with like crypto and NFTs and all that stuff, like I get the sense that it has something to do with the fact that there's all this just money sloshing around. And they literally don't know what to do with it. So they have to like invent these kind of fake things to uh, play with. But uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it, the, the Biden, the Biden thing is just like, I mean, they don't even care anymore. Like they don't no. even have any shame. They just, you know, you just got to shut up and take it. We've been uh, vacationing in Nantucket since the 1970s, so buzz off. Like that was, that was yeah. basically the take. Uh, but it's not about where you're vacationing. It's about the corruption associated with staying in the compound belonging to the co-CEO of the Carlisle Group. And again, um, I just want to give myself a pat on the back, which I don't do often, because literally no one else connected those dots. That yeah. uh, the very same week... He reappointed Jerome Powell to the Federal Reserve, who, again, put quantitative easing on overdrive. Anyway, I love this topic. I'm sure I'm going to do other decodes on it in the future, um, but I'm always happy to explain it. And by the way, I did watch that video um, with uh, with Zizek and uh, Verifak because it was great, yeah. <laughs> especially because it is complicated, but you don't really need to complicate it much. Just know yeah. that an undemocratically, um, a, a, an undemocratic group of people, meaning they weren't elected, get to make these massive decisions about pumping money, pumping capital into big banks and private equity firms. And then they just use that money to further enrich themselves. That's all that happens. No congressional approval necessary. Um, All right. Well, well, Senate does have to uh, confirm the chair of the Federal Reserve, but nonetheless. Yeah. Well, all right, let's uh, get to our interview, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, Joining us now is uh, Adoner Usmani. He is uh, an assistant professor of sociology and social studies over at Harvard University. Adoner, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, So I figured we can talk about two different topics. I think topics that are somewhat related. Um, You know, you've done a lot of work in regard to mass incarceration. And recently you uh, wrote an essay in The Catalyst in regard to this ongoing debate about um, class versus race. Let's start with mass incarceration. Um, You know, you talk about how there are a lot of myths associated with the story uh, that people tell of mass incarceration in the United States. What are those myths? What are those misconceptions? Well, I think the easiest way to summarize the conventional view of why we have mass incarceration is to think about the incarceration rate, which is prisoners over people. So everyone knows that the United States has an enormous number of people in prison, probably second only to the Soviet Union in the history of the 20th century, as far as we know, and having people behind bars. And one way of thinking about why a country might have people in prison is that a country might just be reacting really punitively to the way in which people in a society behave. And that's generally the way in which we think about why the Soviet Union had mass incarceration is that it was a state-led program for other reasons to put people in prison. Um, But if you think about the, again, to go back to the prisoners over people ratio, you can kind of break out the prisoners over people ratio into two quantities. So you can break it out into prisoners over violence and violence over people. So prisoners over people equals violence over people times prisoners over violence. And if you look at prisoners over violence in the United States, it actually isn't that different 
from the ratio in other European countries. The United States is a little bit more punitive than other countries, but most of the difference in prisoners over people is actually driven by the first term, which is violence over people, which we typically measure by something like the homicide rate. So one simple way of summarizing this is that the United States has a homicide rate that is about five to six times the European average, and it is an incarceration rate that is about six to seven times the European average. So a lot of the work is being done by the outsized levels of violence in the United States when we're trying to explain mass incarceration. And that's just very different from the conventional view of mass incarceration, which says that mass incarceration is a result of the extremely punitive American public or extremely punitive American judges or something like that, something about our culture, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, at least in my view, a lot of it is driven by America's problem of violence. I think that... um... Uh, maybe a lot of people who read your work challenging kind of the mainstream narrative um, would accuse you of denying the role of uh, historical racism or something in the United States like that. Um, when I read, when I've read your pieces um, I've had the exact opposite response in that it, it's just, it just points, it's just a finer point on it, but it's not, it, it's just a, a clearer analysis of it. Um, it doesn't deny the presence of it. Um, I want to ask about this, the, what you talked about. Can I say something about that or? You can, you can say whatever you like. Well, I just think you put it well, and I would just put like an exclamation mark on it, which is that it's really, the debate is not about whether America is racist, was racist. The debate is really a debate about how racism matters. One way of thinking about it is that we have racism inside the criminal justice system. And so we could fix the problem of mass incarceration by anti-bias trainings or hiring more black cops or something like that. But the other way, which I think is the way that one ought to think about it if one is paying attention to the problem of violence, is that actually this is a problem of historic racism outside the criminal justice system, which means that the things that we need to do to eliminate mass incarceration are more complicated than simply eliminating bias from inside the criminal justice system, which would, of course, be a worthy goal, but it wouldn't achieve what many people think it would of course um well i want to ask about what you were talking about that um you know vis-a-vis say france or italy or whatever that the united states has a much higher uh incarceration rate mostly because the united states is a much more violent society um can you talk about why that is uh like what is this uh, this concept of concentrated disadvantage like what what is what's going on there Yeah, it's a. I mean, this is in some ways like uh, the million dollar question, I think, for scholars of punishment is to try to understand cross national differences in violence. And I don't want to pretend that it's an easy answer, but there has been a a pretty good answer, I think, in kind of the sociology of crime for several decades now. Probably the, the best exponent of this, who was the person who came up with the term that you just coined concentrated disadvantage, was. William Julius Wilson, and I would encourage people to take a look at Bill Wilson's work. The basic argument is that the United States, and it's not an argument that'll be unfamiliar to listeners of your show or readers of Jacobin, is that the United States is unique amongst advanced capitalist countries in having what sociologists call concentrated poverty. Concentrated poverty is just the idea that you're poor, not simply because you yourself live under the poverty line, that's part of your poverty, but you're also poor because class and racial segregation mean that you're surrounded by other poor people. And the fact that you're surrounded by other poor people means that your access to 
networks and public goods is also radically diminished. And all of those things together are taken to be concentrated poverty. The United States has unique, exceptional levels of that vis-a-vis the rest of the advanced capitalist world. Very simply, that's the result of two things. One is its exceptional history. It's the only developed country to also have been a slave society, and that has left some enduring social problems. And then the other issue, which is not unrelated to the first, is that the United States also has a anemic redistributive effort that the government puts in relative to other countries. It taxes much less of its overall national income than other countries and redistributes less to the poor. You put those two things together, and I think you have a pretty good explanation for America's exceptional levels of concentrated poverty. You know, I I wonder if you've looked into the impact of the increasing profit motive behind incarceration. You know, there's been this explosion of private prisons um, on a state level, certainly, uh, since the 1980s in response to the war on drugs. Has that factored in at all in in your research or your your data on this? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in general, my view is that that is overstated. One way to think about it is that today in America, private prisons account for only about 9% or something of the incarcerated population. So if you eliminate them, you don't see much difference in the fact that the United States is outlying in its incarceration rates. The other way of thinking about it relates to the point that I was making earlier, which is that if this were really driven by the privatization of the prison industry, you would expect to see the difference between the United States and other countries being driven not so much by the violence over people ratio, but by over the prisoners over violence ratio. You would expect to see basically that the United States, due to the incentives that private prisons have, is overreacting to the level of violence or um, criminal behavior in the society. And that's just not really what you see when you break it down in that way. So that's the other reason that I would be skeptical of that account, which is not to say that, you know, it's not scandalous that private prisons exist and that should be part of a reform program, no doubt but it's just not the main part of the story. I, I, when I read about your, um, your idea of, uh, of the way that the U S uh, industrialized vis-a-vis, uh, you know, other advanced capitalist nations and, uh, you know, the, the, that the presence of a black underclass in, in, in the South that kind of was kept there, uh, due to Jim Crow, um, right at the moment where the U S was industrializing, um, is one of the keys to understanding the, the, you know, the effects, the, 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 the presence of mass incarceration and, and, and violent crime in, in the United States in the 20th century. Uh, can you like explain that? Yeah. Better than yeah, I, yeah. Better, better than I could. Well, I thought you did a really good job, but I'll try to, uh, I think, um, I mean, the way that I like to summarize it is that the United States is unique in advanced capitalist, in the advanced capitalist world, really as a result of slavery. But it's unique in the sense that what slavery meant through the plantation economy that you had in the South after slavery is that the United States industrialized with the peasantry of Europe rather than with its own indigenous peasantry, which was trapped in the racist regime in of the Jim Crow South. And so then when the that regime broke down for a whole host of reasons and African Americans moved north, they moved north to labor markets which had already basically had their industrialization boom and had begun to deindustrialize in fact. And you know one 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 simple way of seeing this is that basically it was after the collapse 
I think in around the early 20th century, the employment rate for male African African American men and white men was more or less similar in the early 20th century. I can't remember specifically the numbers, but about as many working as large a proportion of working age black men and white men were employed in the early 20th century. But the simple story of the 20th century after that was that there was a complete collapse with agriculture of the male employment rate amongst um, black Americans due to the collapse of agriculture. And the American economy basically never replaced those jobs for African-Americans. It, it, you know, a little bit maybe in the mid 20th century as industry rose after World War II, but the peak was much, much earlier in terms of employment. And, and basically America has never replaced those jobs. And that I think is the underlying cause of the social problems and the racial divisions in the American working class that you see throughout the 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, you, you provide a lot of data to, to back up what you're arguing here. And um, I'm curious if you've already looked into the uptick in crime, including violent crime, beginning um, during the pandemic. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like that trend is continuing 2021. Um, do you associate that uptick with, uh, you know, economic I guess, suffering that has followed the pandemic? Um, are you noticing any other trends that are interesting? Yeah, it's really, it's a great question. And it's a question that unfortunately, I don't think I have a very good answer to. I mean, the way that I think about this is that it's entirely possible that the kind of shocks that have led to the rise in crime are shocks related to the pandemic and the insecurity that it has brought on. But one way of thinking about this is that a better society would be robust to those shocks. And so in a better world, we would have, uh, we wouldn't have any of the concentrated poverty that is sort of the underlying cause. And so we wouldn't be vulnerable to the triggers that were the pandemic. And so even if kind of the triggers are non-economic, they only are active on a basis of economic oppression, economic and racial oppression. That's the way that I think about it beyond Beyond that, to have a better answer, I think, you know, one of the really uh, unfortunate things about my occupation is that we just are always <laughs> backward looking. We wait for the data and we just See, don't. Academics know. are too responsible. You academics are too <laughs> responsible. Just deliver the fucking hot take and move on, dude. You don't need some fucking data. Um, uh, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, can I ask a follow up to that? Because yeah, I, I, I'm also noticing... Um, a trend in like the commentary in response to the uptick in crime. And mm. I'm curious um, how you would respond to it. So for instance, uh, in California, there uh, has been this effort to lessen the prison population during the pandemic. And so they increased uh, the number of offenses that uh, uh, offenders can, you know, take advantage of no cash bail. So let's say mm. uh, you engaged in burglary. Uh, if you got caught, you will get booked, but you can post bail without having to pay a, a penny. And okay. so you're you're seeing a lot of uh, Californians and also people across the country argue that these laxed policies um, have led to the uptick in crime, that there are no yeah. longer deterrents in place. That's right. Yeah. Um, so how how do you respond to that? Because one of my fears is that as we see crime increase, uh, we're going to see the pendulum kind of swing back to an yeah. extreme, a, pu a punitive extreme. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think I think in some way, you know, you've hit you've hit the nail on 
I, I don't know how this expression works always. You've On hit, the head. You've hit the head of the nail of the most, you've hit the head <laughs> of the most important nail, which is that yeah. I think um, in some ways, like what we're seeing is history repeating itself. If you, if you go back to the, if you go back to the ratio that I was, uh, the ratios that I was proposing at the beginning, violence over people and prisoners over violence, one of the things that people don't often appreciate about the United States, which might be surprising to hear, is that in the 50s and 60s, prior to the rise in crime, the violence over people ratio, sorry, the, not the, the, the prisoners over violence ratio in the United States was remarkably low by international standards. The United States was a land of low punitiveness. The, the United States had an incarceration rate that was about the rate in other European countries. But it was a, it was the fact that the United States also had a homicide rate that was very, very high. And so to have an ordinary incarceration rate and a very, very high homicide rate, you basically have to have a low prisoners over homicide ratio. So the United States was a land of low punitiveness. And in many ways, what happened in the 70s was a reaction to that fact, a reaction to the low levels of punitiveness in the United States. There's a wonderful book by, well, I mean, I wouldn't endorse everything in this book. But there's a book by Bill Stuntz called The Collapse of American Criminal Justice, which makes this argument quite well. And I think in some ways what you're observing today is we're reliving a version of that problem, which is that because the the only tool that the United States has thrown at the problem of violence is penal policy, right? You either try to deter or you pull back when crime goes down. We're in this cycle where we either fight it with prisons or we pull back once crime gets better. And then the only thing that's available in the public imagination when crime goes back up is to ramp up prisons again. So I think we're stuck in this cycle. And this is one of the reasons that I think socialists socialists obviously should be thinking about criminal justice reform, because that's where many of the most disadvantaged people lie. But in in another way, criminal justice reform really needs socialists, because criminal justice reform has been stuck in this uh, in, in, in penal policy. And what socialists really have to contribute is the importance of social policy to the problems that the criminal justice system can barely address. Yeah, it was like, a, I remember like talking to, uh, I think you and Anna, you, Anna, you and I talked about it when we were like talking about like the, you know, I think it was like in the wake of January 6th or some awful thing that happened. And it was like, well, what's the answer? And I'm like, uh, uh, Medicare for all, like in a way, you know, like yeah. um, it sounds super unsatisfying, but it kind of is is true in a way that like that kind of stuff just creates a better society overall, uh, reduces the the levels of dis- mistrust, reduces the levels of crime, it reduces right. all kinds of bad behavior um, when you have a, a more robust social democracy. But I want to ask about, um, you know, I know that I, I know that the that the the recreational drug, uh, the percentage of people using recreational drugs that are in prison is is sometimes overstated, but it's still kind of it's still there. And, you know, there is the, the crack disparity. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is the, the fact that, um, you know, white Americans and black Americans consume marijuana at about the same rate. Yeah. Uh, but black Americans are four times more likely to be arrested for it. Uh, what's going on there? Well, it's a huge question. Huge question. I think the first thing to do is to the first thing to say is what you said um, at the outset, which is that the drug war, it's important to detach the story of the drug war a little bit from the story of mass incarceration. In the conventional view, they're very, very entangled. So the story of the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander really entangles them and says, basically, we have mass incarceration because of the war on drugs. 
But one very simple reason that can't be true is the statistic that you cited, which is that it's only a very, very small proportion of the total prison population that is in there for drug use. The proportion of drug prisoners is about 20 to 25 percent, depending on how you count it exactly. But only a small minority of those people are actually sort of in for petty possession. I mean, it's a very, very small fraction of that. I, I, I can't remember exactly the number, but it's in the region of three to five percent of the drug prisoners or something like that. Most people are kind of the people who are caught up in the drug trade, obviously not the kingpins. Those, those people don't end up going to prison. It's more like the foot soldiers of the drug war who end up in prison. And so in that sense, it's important to detach, I think, the as I was saying, the idea of mass incarceration from the war on drugs. Separately, though, then there's the question of what explains the punitive reaction to the war on drugs. And that is a tricky question. I think one thing that I think is unsatisfying is the traditional view, which is that this is simply white racism. One reason that that is is an insufficient story, even though that's no doubt part of the story, is that these same drug laws were laws that black communities voted for en masse throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. There are two very good books that make the case for D.C. and Harlem. Um, there's a book called Locking Up Our Own, which won the Pulitzer by James Foreman Jr., and there's a book called uh, Black Silent Majority by Michael Javen Fortner about Harlem. And these are these are both books which make the case that many of the draconian drug laws that we associate with the war on drugs and that we associate with white racism actually found majority support in black communities. And therefore, you can't really understand the war on drugs without also making sense of the high levels of crime with which they were associated in the public's mind. Yeah, you know, one thing that you draw attention to that I think is so important is the fact that in the lead up to the crime bill, which Joe Biden, I think, is there's a lot, lot of criticism toward that. And I think it's justified. But you talk about how, you know, lawmakers didn't just concoct uh, draconian or punitive uh, criminal justice policy um, out of thin air. It was because of public opinion related to uh, the crime wave in the country. And you also kind of get into uh, polling that suggests that uh, the majority of African-American voters did, in fact, want a more punitive response uh, because of the crime wave. And, and it's interesting because it seems as though that kind of information gets lost in any type of reporting. In fact, you know, when we talk about the current efforts to reform the criminal justice system, the dominant narrative is defund the police or, or take money out of mm -hmm. uh, the systems we have in place. But you also talk about the importance of um, lowering recidivism, uh, creating a system in which people actually uh, receive rehabilitation instead of just uh, having a punitive incarceral state. Um, and that would require not defunding. <laughs> that would actually require right. additional uh, resources. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a, that's a great point. I mean, there. I think there, there are two points that I would want to make when we're thinking about what alternatives we ought to prioritize. One is, as you said, if we're interested in rehabilitating people, then we need to invest in what you could think of as kind of post-emptive social policy. So after people have committed a crime, we want to invest in their rehabilitation, their training, their readiness to return to society in the way that, say, the Nordics do, right? The, the Scandinavian countries do. And that is just very, very expensive. I mean, for good reason, right? You to, to train someone, to give them 
um, the ability to return to society and to work and things like this, you you need you need to invest in them. I, I don't. The numbers are you know a little difficult to compare across nationally, but but roughly the Swedish. I think it's either Sweden or Norway that spends something like two hundred thousand dollars per prisoner. So if you want to do something like that, you need to commit more and not less resource. I mean, one of the reasons that American prisons are so inhumane is precisely because they're so inexpensive and so overcrowded. Um, and then the other part of it, obviously, is the preemptive social policy part, which is that if we want to build a more humane society, we have to invest in people prior to the point in their lives at which they would commit a crime as well. And that, too, is extremely expensive to invest in early childhood education, to invest in social policy, to invest in better. All of these kinds of things just require an enormous amount of resources. And so it's a kind of politics that is not at all Austerity politics, right? And, and and defund the police has a sort of, uh, it's like there's a there's a there's an affinity with austerity politics that I think the left should resist. We we need more money, not less, for all of these things. Well, luckily we're getting the Build Back Better plan. Um, <laughs> I want to ask about your new essay uh, in Catalyst, hot off the press, uh, the class path to racial liberation, which you co-authored with uh, David Zachariah. Um, what 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 are you talking about? The, this this debate, uh, you know, that a lot of a lot of people on the left have had, and, and even some liberals uh, have have weighed in on it a lot. Um, this debate over um, race versus class. What's 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 this about? Uh, well, big question. Uh, it's about a lot of things. I think one of the the way that we start the essay is we observe that any good leftist, any good egalitarian in this society, in the United States, and in many other racially divided societies, has to be concerned about racial equality. There's something really scandalous about the fact that just by virtue of your arbitrary assignment into a racial group, you live worse in so many different dimensions of life. That has to outrage us. The question for any egalitarian then, of course, is how do we fight that? How do we change it? How do we close the racial gap between, in the essay, we talk specifically about white Americans and black Americans, but the argument could be generalized. And when you do that, when you think about, okay, how should we close the racial gap? You have to think politically. You have to think strategically. What would it mean to close the racial gap? And one of the very, very obvious challenges for any American egalitarian who seeks to close the racial gap is that the ways in which we know how to transform the United States transform capitalist societies in general, all depend on having either a majority of the population behind your policy proposal, behind your campaign, which you would do through democratic means, or a majority of the working class behind your policy campaign, which you might do through unions and disruptive campaigns. And the obvious problem, if that's the case, if that's how you're going to transform America, is that Black Americans and non-white Americans in general are a minority of both the population and the working class. And so you confront what we call just the fatal limit of demography in the United States. It's very, very difficult, impossible, really, to build a race-specific coalition to attack racial inequality. We then say, okay, well, if that's the case, are, is the situation hopeless? Is there nothing we can do? And we observe that, no, that's not the case, precisely because... African-Americans are overrepresented amongst the poor and overrepresented in, in the working class. You can also attack racial inequality in the United States by attacking class inequality, by attacking income inequality. And unlike 
racial inequality, unlike race-based strategies, class-based strategies actually are viable because majorities of the population and majorities of the working class have an interest in closing the class gap. And so the class path, what we call the class path, becomes a viable path to racial liberation, racial equality in the United States in a way that the race-based path can never be. I mean, it's the same thinking behind the popularity of universal programs. You know, when when everyone gets to benefit from it or take advantage of it, um, it certainly has more uh, viability. Uh, Social Security, Medicare, stuff like that um, is popular precisely because it doesn't, uh, you know, leave certain people out based on their race um, or, you know, other identities. But this is such a difficult conversation to have because I think... A lot of the narrative in mass media is that, you know, we see uh, disparities among races in this country simply because people are racist, people are bad. And so I don't know what the solution to that would be, right, if that's what you genuinely believe. Um, So it's hard to discuss this without immediately getting painted as a so-called class reductionist or anything like that. Um, But you you and Zachariah write about the materialist wager, which I think is really important to touch on. Talk about how, um, like, first of all, what the wager is and how does that fit into the fundamentals for our political strategy? Yeah, so I think one thing that we one thing that we can observe when we look at the United States is that African Americans are worse off than white Americans, not just in that they have on average less income, not just on a, that they have less wealth, but also that they're stigmatized in our culture, that in our in our social life, um, in politics, they're they're much less likely to have power, et cetera. So there are a wide variety of domains of social life in which African Americans are worse off than white Americans. Now, one challenge when you then are trying to think of a program of racial equality is you have to think, okay, well, what kind of strategy could address simultaneously all of these different dimensions? And it seems like there's probably none. We'd have to prioritize. And so in thinking about which to prioritize, we want to think about what the relationship is between these different domains of inequality. And one of the things that Dave and I argue in the essay is that it seems reasonable to commit to what we call the materialist wager, which is the idea that economic inequalities income and wealth inequalities principally have a kind of asymmetric relationship between these other domains. Not to say that these other domains don't affect income and wealth inequality, but income and wealth inequality have an outsized effect in the other direction. And if that's true, then it is rational for egalitarians to focus on inequalities in income and wealth. I think of that point as just a basic point that most socialists probably already understand intuitively, but it's something that's worth stating explicitly. The reason that we focus on income and wealth is because these things have an outsized impact on how people fare in all domains of social life. It's not necessarily because we care more about income inequality than any other kind of inequality. It's because income inequality and wealth inequality are the key to transforming all those other inequalities. You go even a step further saying that um, these uh, race-based approaches actually uh, elevate the interests of of the rich over the poor. It's something that I've kind of felt, you know, intuitively in my bones when I've just been watching politics for the last six years or whatever. Um, uh, But I am not uh, I am not a academic at Harvard and cannot uh, explain why that is. But why is that? Well, so. One thing to note about the 
income and, and wealth distributions, in the essay we only talk about income, but the same thing is true of wealth, is that within race, income inequality has become so significant, so large in the United States, um, that within, if you just look at Black America, so in the essay we look at working age men who are Black, if you just look at them, income inequality amongst Black working age men in the United States is as unequal, roughly, as the country of Colombia, the Latin American country of Colombia. It's just the Gini coefficient is 0.5 for if that means anything to people. It's just a very, very unequal income distribution. And the white income distribution is similar. I can't remember exactly the number, but it's around that. And both are very close to the overall level of inequality. Now, what all of that implies, as we try to show in the piece, is that if you're a poor black person, the gap between you and a a poor white person is much, much smaller than the gap between you and a rich black person. And you can think in a stylized way, you can think of race-based politics as trying to basically close the gap between you and white people. So take the poor black person and make their life equivalent to a poor white person. And class-based politics is trying to close the gap between you and a rich black person. And it turns out that in the United States today, the gap between you, as I was saying, you and a rich black person is just much, much larger. Something like, uh, depending on which points you pick, it's about seven to eight times larger, we show. So what that means is that class-based politics just stands to transform your life in a way that race-based politics can't. You or the gap between you and a poor white person is just not that large. So if you lived like them, your life wouldn't be all that different. Now, if you go and think about the interests of the rich black person, they stand to benefit quite a bit from race-based politics because they live worse than the rich white person. The 85th percentile black person lives worse than the 85th percentile white person. Whites are advantaged. But class-based politics actually works in the opposite direction because they live above the average. They live above the median. So any effort to bring them closer to the poor is going to be deleterious to their interests. And so you start to see that In fact, there's a kind of class gradient in who is attracted to race-based politics and who is attracted to class-based politics, even within the Black community. Basically, class-based politics just just does much more for the Black poor, while race-based politics does much more for the Black rich. Now, that's not to say that race-based politics wouldn't do anything for the poor Black person. It would move them to the position of the poor white person. But it is just interesting to note that it does much, the, the relative preferences are reversed in this case, between poor and rich. And then I think, you know, the natural question is, well, why does the left talk so much about race-based politics rather than class-based politics? Right. And and how do we overcome the counterproductive and difficult nature of the kind of campaigning we see on the right? Um, You know, this is a little bit of an extension of Nando's question, where I think both political parties lean into issues of identity and race specifically because it's part of um, a culture war that they uh, want to distract us with to kind of avoid having to discuss the, uh, you know, economic ramifications of what they stand for. But it's really hard to, to, I guess, present the kind of data and the kind of work that you're doing while simultaneously you're dealing with um, some of the most disgusting xenophobic and racist um, commentary and behavior from the right. So how do we overcome that to to really share this message in a way that doesn't come across as dismissive of the, you know, lived experience of, of, of minorities in this country? Yeah. Million dollar question. Super question. I think the, the, the place that I would start is to just note that, if we emphasize if we if we emphasize the gap between 
the black distribution and the white distribution, you have to ask, particularly if you have the kind of analysis that I think a lot of people have about white Americans and the influence of racism on their convictions, you have to ask, what is in it? What is what is in it for them in that kind of politics? I, I think it's it's natural that, to think that basically you would just turn them off and you would turn them off and make them perfect. Uh, you, you, you'd invite the right in, in effect, you, you, you know, because you're focusing people on the white black gap at every stage. Uh, you you'd be focusing black people on the gap between them and white people, but you'd be focusing white people on the gap between them and black people. And it's natural to think that that would lead to a kind of xenophobic, racist politics. In fact, one of the points that we make in the essay is that our best vehicle for anti-racism is not haranguing white supremacists to try and turn them into altruists, trying to turn white supremacists into thinking that, in fact, they should... Uh, advance the interests of other people over and above their own, which is what race-based politics presents to them, but in fact, present to them an agenda that is in their own material interests. And in that, like in trying to build a politics that is in the interests of both the black poor and the white poor, I think anti-racism is the natural consequence because to build any kind of movement, any kind of collective action movement, any kind of trade union, any kind of social movement, you have to see the people with whom you're building a movement as your equals. And so in that kind of environment, anti-racism is a natural idea. Anti-racism is a natural ideology of that kind of movement. That's what we've seen in the history of trade unions in the United States. We've seen a lot of nasty things in the history of trade unions as well. But where anti-racism has, anti-racism has made inroads in the white working class, it's been precisely through those kinds of movements, I think. Well, Adoner's money. You've been a very popular guest in the chat. The the, the people be loving their Adoner. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This was thank wonderful, very informative, um, very clear analysis. Always appreciate that. Um, you know, come back anytime. Thank you. Have me back anytime. I'd love to. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Alrighty. All right. Let's bring the homie Kale back on. Yeah, just um... homie Kale Brooks. <laughs> I can't. I can't follow up Adoner. That's this is it's too high of a task for me he's he's far too analytical he's if you think i'm a little yeah. too much of a structuralist at times the donor is like yeah i'm a structuralist and look at all my data that proves that i'm ex- i'm exactly right so yeah i love like he was like well i can't i can't comment on the thing that is happening right now mostly because i don't have the appropriate data instead of like just being like i know what's happening right now right because yeah. i can i can uh infer it from you know history or whatever but uh yeah he needs the data the data without the data there are no takes. Well, also sure. just the amount of people who get on YouTube and lie just because like they have to show up every single day and be like, yeah, here's what I think is happening in the world. And it just kind of feels right. Oh, you mean like me? <laughs> no, you, you do pretty, you're, you're mostly, you're mostly pretty accurate. I think. Yeah, no. Mostly. Mostly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mostly. Um, I try to be accurate, but I don't, I don't always know. Um, but uh, I'm here because uh, we have about 10 more minutes of the show. And if you guys want to ask us some questions, either via Super Chats or via, uh, if you're a YouTube member, you can just ask us a question in the chat. We'll try to get through those. Um, before we get to anything new, there was a Super Chat earlier from Robert who said, COVID is the new cancer. Why eradicate it when you can make money continually treating it? Um, I, I think that part of that's obviously correct insofar as companies want to 
you know, they're going to make up companies are there to make a profit. And if they can see a profit opportunity, they will probably, especially if it's a better opportunity than any other opportunity available, they're probably going to take it. Um, but also I think it's wrong to go too far in the direction of like, they actively want everyone sick in order to, you know, make money endlessly. I, I don't think it's quite that cynical, but, and I also don't think they have that kind of power, but at the same time, like, like we were saying, like Anna was saying earlier, when the rollout happens the way it happens and it's like very kind of irrational and haphazard, they don't mind because they're just interested in making a profit in that process that, um, they weren't, they're not going to go out of their way to incur greater costs by vaccinating parts of the world that are highly unvaccinated right now. Yep. Well, I think, I think that the more, you know, Lee Phillips has written about this a lot, but like the, Mm -hmm. the real kind of where the profit, uh, uh, thing is bad is also like a just preventative stuff. Like they, they've, they've known about coronaviruses for, for years. Um, there's been a few and they know that it's always been a threat and we could have been, uh, developing a, ba- a vaccine for them uh, years in advance, but because it was so speculative and because it required so much money up front, like no private interest would ever do it. Um, like, sure, like if they were to make a bet and then it, it worked out, like it would it would be amazing, but it's way too risky. So without a um, without a sort of nonprofit state actor um, investing that kind of money in in preventing um, something like COVID from happening, um, then no one's going to do it. And so that we're going to be a year, like what happened with COVID and we're like a year plus without a vaccine, um, when we could have just had them at the ready, whenever, like there was like a little breakout, just like, you know, bam, just send it over and nip this thing in the butt. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's again, like looking at like the financial times article from earlier, uh, the fact is like they've dramatically increased the production process through basically through doing like it's called vertical integration where they've been uh, they've taken under their control. Pfizer's taken under their control, greater aspects of the production process. So for instance, they were worried they weren't going to be able to ship uh, the vaccines in cool containers. And so they ended up creating factories in order dry ice factories and container factories to then create the, the things they need in order to transport uh, the vaccine the production process, like the time that it takes to actually make a vaccine has dramatically reduced. Uh, and those are all good things. The fact that like you can scale these things up and then the production process becomes faster, that's all good. And it is a miracle that we have it. The massive problem is ownership. The fact mm-hmm. that the, the entity that's doing all these things is not uh, a publicly controlled or publicly um uh, a, 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 an entity that has some public accountability. Uh, it's something that is geared towards profit maximization. And so it's you trying to, uh, there's a lot of things here where it's like disentangling, like the, the scale and the kind of the miracle of the situation from the fact that it's also going to become increasingly fraught and like horrific because of the fact that it's for profit uh, or the fact that like the vaccine works and the boosters are great. And then the fact that like, that's where they're going to find more money in the the near term, rather than finishing off vaccinating everyone. Uh, and that's not like a, you know, you don't have to be anti-vax, you don't have to become conspiratorial or something about that insofar as like, yeah, I mean, it is it is kind of a conspiracy insofar as it's a it is a small group of people. It's a group of shareholders that are deciding, are we going to make money or not? But what they say doesn't necessarily go. There's a lot of 
mediation in that process, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm also partially just stalling because someone had asked us when the class war board game is going to be coming out, uh, when it's actually going to be shipped out. Well, it the Kickstarter's out, um, that finished um, and we appreciate everyone who donated and, uh, we like greatly surpassed our goal, which is great because now we can try to get the game out to more people. Um, as far as when it actually ships to the public, uh, I just messaged someone and if I find out in the next five or so minutes, I'll let you know. I actually don't know. Um, I, I was the, I had to pitch the game and the Kickstarter, but I was like, I came on to that project in the last couple of weeks. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, and how long until it surpasses Monopoly and sparks a revolution? That's up to you guys. So Yeah. Well, I heard Monopoly started off as a left-wing uh, game. Do you guys, yeah. have you guys heard that story? Yeah, yeah. In yeah. fact, I was playing Monopoly with my brother and sister-in-law, um, I don't know, like a few months ago. And uh, nice. I looked at my brother and I was like, you know, this is like an anti-capitalist game. And he's yeah. like... I'm like, you know why? Like, you can see it happening right in front of us. Yeah. Uh, and he, every time he'd get frustrated at like me, like hoarding properties and stuff, I'd be like, "This is capitalism." I'd be like, yeah, oh, baby. you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The game's awesome when you win, and it sucks when you're. They're not just bleeding you dry. Just, yeah, fucking just turn over turn. Like, just ble- bleeding you dry. <laughs> just extracting rents from you as they fucking take over the entire world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's like, and obviously, now I'm being super nerdy, but like, obviously, like, you're just all playing as like investors in that game. Like, yeah, you're just the people who are losing are just like the investors who are not currently like at the top of the the list that are not currently winning. Uh, And that's why companies hate competition. And like, the fact that capitalism is all about competition means that they're at war with each other all the time that it's like, because it sucks to lose. And obviously we're not even talking about the fact that like the vast majority of people are not even in that game. They're like the ones being crushed at the bottom in the process. Mm. You see being a capitalist means taking risks, Kale. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're the real brave soldiers here. Yeah. I mean, they are, but yeah. they, they're taking risks and it's like, a, but if they have to, because if they don't, then they're not, they're not in the game. And and also they increasingly set up a system where they don't really take as much right. risk. I mean, the Fed printing money and like handing it over, not much risk. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing where like in the last, like basically since the 70s, since like the neoliberal turn, increasingly like profits of all of like all the major companies are more and more derived from uh, from consumer debt, it's not com- because the whole thing is like when you actually smash the unions and destroy the welfare state and you cut wages, it means that they don't ha- people don't have the income to buy all your shit. And so you have to rely on things like credit cards and debt and whatever else. And so like <clears throat> this process, it's both debt and it's also like just basically supplied by the government right now. Like that the the fact that like the you have all these like tax cuts for for the rich um that you have these like stimulus programs to like try to get them to invest and yet like when they t- take this money they largely still don't invest they largely just pocket it um and why they do that it's kind of unclear and it would be interesting to know why like someone why out they there pocket is, it well right as opposed to investing and making more money down the line like rather it's I mean, a, nothing to invest in well, I mean, maybe. Crypto, baby. Crypto. <laughs> Crypto, baby. You know? I mean, that's what they're doing. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no like new worlds to conquer, yeah. you know? 
Well, um, I mean, the question is, why do, you know, why do capitalists... Now we need the digital world to conquer. We need to make up a fake world called the metaverse and then conquer yeah. that. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, so capitalists do invest, but like, I guess there's a question like, why do capitalists invest ever at all? And that's also kind of something of a mystery outside of like, they have to keep investing because they're in competition, but why even be like going back to the monopoly example, like why even be in the game if it sucks so bad? Um, and it's because some people decide it's worth it to, you know, to go into that fight. And, you know, obviously like all these people, there are a few winners and they do pretty well for themselves. Yeah. 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 Um, it's not really a, an open competition to everyone, but, um, there was another super chat question that, uh, I'll read off. Um, I don't know how good of an answer we can give you, but is there any policy on the left to reform interest rates? Uh, charging someone interest by the day is an absolute scam. 3000 interest tacked onto my car right now. I'm sorry to hear that. That's really awful. Oh my God. That's insane. That's absolute insanity. No. And I mean, just going back to my decode, I mean, remember the whole idea of that monetary policy is we lower interest rates to near zero in, in some countries, by the way, like in Japan, they've had like negative interest rates mm-hmm. um, and uh, we'll loan the money to the banks. It'll trickle down to ordinary Americans. But obviously, when you get a loan, it's not at near zero. Right. In some cases, low interest rates have benefited um, homeowners. But we we still see quite a bit like homeowners who are like refinancing, for instance. But for the most part, all we've seen is more predatory lending by these financial institutions that keep getting like this um, infusion or this injection of uh, of liquidity of capital. Mm-hmm. And, also and, okay. about human, yeah, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Finish no, I, I didn't really answer your question. I was just like explaining yeah. it a little more. But in terms of answering your question, I mean, I just think that first of all, the biggest issue that I see is that we have this this incredibly influential group of people in the Federal Reserve unilaterally making decisions about economic policy with absolutely no oversight. Um, Congress has no oversight over what they do. They get to make these decisions unilaterally. And that has massive ramifications on our economic system. And so more democracy is definitely part of the solution, not the entire solution. But I want to move away from um, a financialized, you know, economic system that relies on borrowing, constantly borrowing, constantly going into more and more debt in order to make ends meet, right? We should have robust wages and benefits. And the only way that you're going to have that is through uh, labor power. Uh, Mm -hmm. That way people don't have to rely on borrowing money constantly from these predatory institutions. Yeah. I was just going to make the the final point that I I just find it interesting that throughout human history across societies, lenders have always been social pariahs. Um, You know, it was, you know, famously outlawed by the Catholic church and all that stuff. Um, And that's just true of, many many societies beyond you know western europe or anything like that um and it's only like in the last 20 30 years uh basically since the 1980s that like bankers have like a uh a revered position in society that they're like something that people want to emulate and become and and all this stuff and like let's just go back to 99.9 percent of human history in which like you know lending was kind of seen as immoral and lending and charging interest you know mm-hmm. was kind yeah. of seen as immoral um you know uh that would be nice yeah there's the there's the whole like the socialism of fools of anti-semitism that's attached to to that as well um 
But anyways, um, obviously, Jews don't control the banking system. Anyways, but um, on that note, uh, (laughs) let's wrap. All right. That sounds good. Uh, Well, thank you both. Thanks to everyone watching. Um, We're actually going to stop on time today. Uh, Mm. But uh, we'll be back next week. And uh, have a good weekend. I guess you guys want to say anything else? No, just subscribe as always. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for watching. We love you guys. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye. Bye.